Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and today's guest is Dr. Louise Byrne. She is a Vice Chancellor Senior Research Fellow at RMIT. She previously was awarded uh, the prestigious Fulbright Postdoctoral Scholarship and inaugural RMIT Fulbright Fellowship to conduct research on the lived experience mental health workforce in the United States. She's incredibly passionate in this space, discussing how we can bring lived experience into our workplaces to assist in this better understanding of mental health in the workplace, but also to inform how people with mental health difficulties might be able to access services better. Passionate conversation today. You'll see that Louise oozes this this, this desire and yearning and uh, want to make a difference in this space, which comes from her own lived experience, which I think is a great demonstration of what she's researching as well. So I know you're going to really enjoy this episode. Good morning, Louise, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Look, I wanted to uh, start today's conversation with trying to find out a little bit more about you and, and this term about lived experience. Well, what does that mean? I know that that's, that's your forte, that, that that's where your experience lies, but I want to hear it from you rather than me make a mess of it. Sure thing. Well, um, for me personally, my lived experience has been with using mental health services, both as a teenager and as an adult, including like hospitalizations, involuntary treatments, um, which often weren't very pleasant, um, drug use, homelessness, um, you know, suicide, a whole gamut of things, which understandably really influenced my life, um, my view of myself, my place in the world. So a lot of those are really stigmatized experiences. And particularly because I started having those experiences as a like an early teenager um, in a relatively small town. And that, you know, some of the experiences I was having were really publicly known. Um, like a lot of people, I had experiences of being marginalized, um, of being excluded, of being really heavily judged, and all of the things that come along with those sort of judgments. Um, this was sort of in the, the early mid 90s. So mental health was still fairly taboo as a topic back then. Um, so I kind of rolled through my life, you know, doing okay, better at some times and worse at other times. Um, and then my late mid to late 20s, I bumped into this idea of lived experience work. 
um, specifically peer support roles. They were, somebody told me about these things called peer support roles. And the peer support person was somebody like me who had had these kinds of experiences, these adverse experiences, which had created challenges, which had led to experiences of social isolation or exclusion, which had changed the trajectory of their lives in ways that they probably wouldn't have chosen if, if they could have, but that had ultimately taught them a lot about self-care, about compassion, about sitting with, you know, your, your wounds and what happens on the other side of that. What happens when you have sat in your darkness and you've embraced yourself as you are and you're able to, you know, move forward? And it was probably one, it was, it was one of the most important days of my life because immediately I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of that. It made so much sense on so many levels that all of that suffering that I had been through could be turned around and become a gift to someone else. It could become something useful and helpful to someone else. And in doing so, it, it transforms my experiences somewhat as well, because instead of seeing them as wholly negative or pointless, pointless suffering, it becomes purposeful suffering. It becomes something that somebody else can use, you know, to get a leg up and hopefully out of their own, you know, distress. So, um, Lived experience work for me, obviously, is deeply personal. Um, one of the things about lived experience work that people don't always guess, but I, I, in a way I feel like they should, but they don't always guess, is that it's emotionally, it's incredibly taxing. Because to be good at your job when you're doing lived experience work, you have to go back to some of the most distressing and difficult moments of your life. Um, given that, you need to have really done some work on dealing with those moments and being okay with them um, and finding, I guess, the gold in the shadows. What's, you know, what's the silver lining or what's, what's the escape route that I found or what was the learning that I found from the situation? Um, it's the sort of work that because it's so deeply personal and because it takes you to places that were like very challenging it leaves you pretty drained a lot of the time. So that's a job that um, is both incredibly rewarding and I think it needs to be a vocation. I don't think it's the sort of thing you would do for the pay packet. One, the pay packet's often not all that great, but um, two, you can't sort of ever really leave your job at work, not in the same way that you could, you know, sort of other things. Um, so it's, it's a great privilege it's a great honour. And one of the themes from my PhD is that um, all the lived experience practitioners, workers that I've spoken to also make great sacrifices to do this work. Um, so it's, um, I think it's a, it's a really unique perspective. It's a really unique um, work style. And not, not unsurprisingly, it's poorly understood by the rest of the mental health sector and by human resources and by managers and particularly that cost that that very personal cost that the role has um, I think that it's very difficult for somebody outside um, to comprehend what it takes the emotional toll that work like this takes um, so one of the things you know one of the many things that I'm trying to achieve with my research is a better understanding of the work 
a better understanding of the uniqueness, the unique features, that, that ability to empathise at such a deep level with another human being, to go to, to a place with them that very few other people can go to and be part of their you know, journey out of that place as well, be part of the hope and the, um, I guess, the inspiration to move forward. Um, but it's also about ensuring that people doing this work are getting adequate support that, that, the, that the, the organisations and the sectors um, are taking responsibility for ensuring that these roles are um, adequately resourced, ad adequately understood and adequately um, uh, supported. Because what we have found is that people like me are so keen to do this work that we often um, are accepting very substandard conditions um, because it's a, it's a bit of a roll of the dice position as well. Um, Organisations and the sectors aren't really sure about it. So we'll sort of take what we can get to get a foot in the door because we know how important this is and we believe in it. But we're still, we have a lot of work to do to ensure that the employment um, sort of circumstances and the industrial relations and all that sort of thing are put in place to allow these roles to be successful and effective and also to allow the individuals to be, um, you know, for it to be a reasonable um, toll on them and not an unreasonable toll, which we are finding in some cases at the moment. Can you describe what some of, or give examples of what some of those roles would be you know you've you've uh, at least for me clarified that lived experience is really being able to draw on uh, your past and in, in, in if if you're able to turn that around you, it enriches your understanding of not only your life uh, you know in some sense gives you a greater purpose or meaning it can go out and give you a, a better understanding of others and what they're suffering or pain might be so it changes potentially how you empathize um you know maybe even sympathize uh, you know and obviously it's a big long conversation there as well but can you talk maybe a little bit about uh, what are those uh, roles how how are they different than someone without that lived experience role you bet um first of all i just sort of going back to some of the other like the points that you've just raised, um, you know, Brené Brown's work talks a lot about the difference between empathy and sympathy and empathy being that ability to go there with someone and to get it. Um, and I think the reason that that's so important is because it creates connection. It also creates a sense or a knowing that you're not alone. Because one of the terrible things about mental health and suicide and drug and alcohol addiction and all of these kind of stigmatized adverse experiences, um, one of the worst things is that despite the fact that so many people have these experiences, nearly all of us, at least early in our journey, still believe we're the only one. We still think we're the, we're the loser, we're, the, we're that, that exception to the rule who's just not able to cope for whatever reason and everybody else is doing good or better. And nobody is going to understand this experience that we have. Um, and sometimes people do and sometimes people don't. But that lived experience worker can come down with you into that dark hole and say, hey, you know what? I have been here and I do know what this is about. And you're not alone and you're not the only one. You're not a freak. You're not exceptionally bad. You're not exceptionally weak. You're just a human being who's having a normal human experience there's ups and downs this is a down but it's just part of the tapestry of life 
So that ability to normalize the experience, to take it from being something unusually bad, almost like, I almost think it's like sci-fi sometimes still the way that we think about mental health. When people talk about um, experiences that we label like schizophrenia or, you know, having, having these extreme, people call them psychotic breaks rather than just experiencing reality differently. It's almost like people are talking about someone from another planet when in fact, it's just you know, on a gradient, it's just a more extreme version of the sorts of things we all experience. Like we all think we hear voices occasionally, you know, what was that? Something from the other room. You know, we all sort of see something out of the corner of our eyes. We all experience paranoia. We all experience moments where our perception of a situation was radically different to the way other people perceived that, that situation. So these are all experiences that everyone has. But unfortunately, we've come to learn to talk and think about mental health and particularly some of those more stigmatized experiences as if they are foreign and other and they sit out there somewhere, you know, and, and are not part of a normal human experience, which is nonsense. And it's incredibly divisive and it's very, very unhelpful. Um, so lived experience workers bring that, been there, done that perspective they bring the ability to, rather than, one of the big problems that we have with mental health services, people accessing mental health services, is that the expert-patient divide is enormous. You can't really think of a, of, a, of a greater gap than a human being who, like myself, has, has basically failed at life in that moment. Like, when I've rocked up to services, I have failed to keep my head above water. I have failed to... Um, keep my own mind in check enough to be able to cope with the, the thoughts that are coming at me. I need another human being to come into my mind with me to help me navigate the mess that I have made. So in terms of powerlessness and feeling useless, I don't think, I don't think you could, you know, sort of have a more... Um, like, like a down moment um, on, the, on the power kind of uh, spectrum, you, you really not feeling like you've got much personal agency by the time you rock up to ask for help with your mental health. Um, so then, of course, on the other side of the counter or the desk or what have you, is someone who's typically quite well-dressed, um, who looks quite sharp, who's got that professional white corporate image going on a lot of the time, um, and who definitely has a university degree, um, who as representative of the health system, which of course has an enormous amount of status attached to it. So from the word go, you're just so much on the back foot. You know, there's such a sense of um, this other person has so much so much more power and clout and status than I do. And then, of course, unfortunately, in mental health services, there's a lot of deliberately robbing people of their, their personal agency and of their ability to make decisions, um, particularly when you're hospitalised. There's an enormous amount of needing to just do what you're told, stick to the schedule, um, be compliant. Compliance, this word that, that's used so much in mental health services, that's seen as necessary. Um, and then, of course, when somebody comes out the other end, um, you know, they're discharged from hospital or they finish, you know, their, their course of sessions or what have you, nobody ever helps you restructure your life so you take the reins back so that you're back in control of your life. So you sort of, you go into the mental health system feeling broken 
and like you don't have the answers and you come out feeling like other people gave you answers and ultimately you're still broken and you might have some band-aids on that but a lot of the time you still don't have personal agency and you still don't feel able to step up and take control of your life again so that's a huge missing link um, lived experience workers are a really crucial component in ensuring that that happens because their focus is always on ensuring that the individual retains some level of control over what's happening to them. And they um, enhance person-directed, what we call person-directed services enormously. Um, I don't know if people on your show have talked about the recovery approach, but in Australia and in, in, in all the, the large sort of English-speaking Western nations, the recovery approach has been for decades what we've been moving towards, away from a biomedical um, interpretation of mental health towards a recovery approach, which is about the individual um, not, not a cure or a cessation of symptoms. It's not about focusing on deficits. It's about the individual finding and reclaiming a life that is meaningful to them, a life with hope. And it may or may not include ongoing challenges with their mental health, but importantly, their life is not defined by their experience of mental health. It's self-defined. And so the lived experience worker, again, as experiences of recovery, they understand that recovery approach intrinsically. And also collectively, the lived experience movement was advocating, championing this idea of recovery for over a century before any mental health services started to pay attention to it. So both individually and collectively, lived experience workers have a deep understanding about how to ensure that an individual accessing services still retains some sense of who they are and then they build that and they develop that into a more helpful, more useful sense of who they are um, and are able to move forward in their life with greater um, yeah, self-concept, a self-concept that is more useful. So I think that's an enormous like missing link um, that the lived experience worker that can uniquely provide. Um, they also provide, we call it a bridge of communication between the person accessing services and the service worker, so the clinician or, or whomever it is, um, because they have learnt to work within the mental health service system, they can sort of provide translation between both parties because there is such a disparate um, divide between the person accessing services and that, that health worker. That's another really critical um, feature of the role that I don't think any, any other role could fulfil. So... To actually get to your main question, <laughs> and I talk about this stuff a lot, so I've probably talked for a long time, but um, there are all sorts of roles. It's very exciting. So lived experience work started primarily um, peer support roles, we call them, um, where it's one-on-one -on -one support. So um, you walk with somebody else. I started off in a peer support role many years ago now. And um, you have the privilege of meeting other humans who are struggling with, you know, whatever their challenge is and getting to know them. And through a mutually transformational relationship, you talk, you get to know each other, you inspire each other, you, you find ways. Importantly, that individual finds their own way and you support them in, in, in whatever it is that they identify is meaningful to them and the strategies that they know are going to work for them. So 
that's the sort of the peer support stuff, which is really that one-on-one -on -one or face-to-face -face support. Peer workers can also run groups, um, and that happens quite a bit as well. Um, and that could be more like a like a seated sort of group. Um, obviously, NA, um, AA, those kinds of organisations have been around for a long time. That's their volunteer organisations where an individual will come, you know, or groups come together to talk about like experiences. These are paid roles. So, um, and it's very important that they're paid roles to um, recognise the, the validity, the, the, the important, unique contribution that they make, um, but also because their status with, with, with paid work that you don't get with voluntary work. Um, so there's the peer support roles, which are similar, but, but I guess more, um, more focused than your sort of volunteer you know, AA or NA roles. Then we've got a whole gamut of, um, and we've got roles emerging all the time. So um, it's very exciting. There's um, roles in education and training, both within organisations as well as within um, the higher education sector. Um, there's roles in systemic advocacy. So there are positions in most of the large hospital and health services around the country um, where people with a lived experience will provide input into the design, the delivery um, and the priorities of services. So they're helping at that, uh, at that more like decision-making level um, determine how to make the service more relevant for people, basically. It's like McDonald's has always had a big emphasis on what's the customer actually experiencing? What's that customer actually wanting? So it's, it's taking that um, consumer focus and it's applying it to you know service delivery kind of setting um, there's obviously there's people like me so I'm a lived experience researcher um, and I've been doing that for quite a while now I used to do some teaching as well and um, there are people in consulting roles there are people who sit on representative um, boards there are people in um, executive governance um, in an, a growing number of large NGOs as well as um, state um, funded HHSs across the country. So um, basically there's an increasing push for lived experience informed work to be at every level of, of the sector and um, every layer of services so that that perspective has the opportunity to be taken up at all levels of service design and delivery and not just if you happen to be working, you know, one-on-one. -on -one with say a peer support worker. Um, and that's that's really important. That's an important focus. I mean, in some sense, you're, you're talking about uh, like that McDonald's approach or, or, or any large corporate approach, they're very uh, client focused. You know, they're very client centric. They're, they're, they're trying to understand who are their users and how to best accommodate um, their needs. And the great um, challenge there is people come in so many shapes and sizes and, and, and in, in some sense there's great complexity in, in, in that little example that you provided with uh, attire. If someone is dressed, you know, with uh, like maybe how I am with a, with, with, with a shirt and, you know, have, you know, a nice jumper and some pants, some dress, you know, work pants and, and shoes – it's corporate uh, and for some people that will be quite daunting and it creates that power dynamic and, 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 and struggle and for other people it creates trust and 
um, a, a sense of maybe competence. You know, everyone reads everything so differently, and, and and it's very, I suppose, complex as to how to how to inform um, practice and, and 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 what 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 that what that looks like because there's so many voices. Um, yeah. How how does uh, you know lived experience try and talk about those you know scenarios i mean how i mean it's probably easy with the black and white sort of attire scenario how do you uh, because you can just observe it it's one way or another way how do we overcome those things or how do we i don't know table them or, or ensure that it, it's not ensure but uh, try and promote that it's hopefully read the way that services would want it to be read you know for example you know uh, I don't want my tire to project power or 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 a, or a dominance or um, that there's a an expert in the room. And at the same time, I definitely want there to be some uh, trust in my competence, uh, which sometimes our dress does say. Uh, how do we do that? Yeah, I think. Um in a way you've sort of already hit on it because it's about having like there are different sorts of people of course accessing services and one of the really important reasons that we need lived experience workers in addition to all of the other you know more established mental health professions that we have is that there's this demographic of people who are not being catered to who do find that sort of corporate look intimidating mm. or need that sort of less formal kind of relationship who who want to talk with someone they feel comfortable with um, and but of course there are still people who as you say want to go to a more traditional like doctor and they want to feel like this doctor sure. knows what you know what they're on about um, and of course there are also people who want both of those things you know mm. or, or a range of other things <laughs> Yeah, you know, and at different times in their journey as well. So one of the things I talk about a lot with the lived experience workforce is it's not a replacement, um, you know, of other forms of, um, you know, help or, or support that are out there. It's an additional tool on your tool belt. And just like we can't do without a screwdriver or a hammer or, you know, a pair of pliers, we also need lived experience workers in the multidisciplinary multidisciplinary environment that is you know service delivery they're another really valuable way to provide support for people um, apart from the fact that um, and, and and saying that I mean a lot of peer support work when I was a peer support work, worker I certainly was pretty casual you know with the way that I dressed and I saw that as important um, but in my you know research roles and when I was in a systemic advocacy position, I um, catered more to the tastes of the people around me, um, as you say, because I wanted to promote an image of credibility. I didn't always feel good about it. It felt uncomfortable. But, um, you know, different settings, different roles will do different things. But what the lived experience worker provides is an additional perspective. So whether you're talking about corporate, non-corporate, or you're just talking about a variety of perspectives and ways of viewing, the lived experience worker plugs a big hole 
that we've had for quite a long time, which is truly understanding what the client needs and wants and how the client views what it is that's happening at the moment. Because for a long time, you know, service delivery was all about what we think should happen. It's that, you know, external perspective. And this allows that mirror to be held up and say, well, actually, no, like that's working, that's not mm. working. We need to do more of this. And I suppose in many ways, that's what clinicians are trying, and maybe it's being taught as well, trying to do is you have to very much be a chameleon. You know, you have to be different with each person. You know, it might be the different language sets. It might be, you know, how you reference things, um, you know, obviously your approach, you know, what, uh, you know, interests you can tap into that, 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 that are of like and, and so on and so forth. I'll tell you a funny story, actually. When, when I first started, uh, I was just still at university uh, doing, doing work in, in mental health. I uh, uh, scored a job with Centre Care. Uh, they're now called Catholic Care and a fantastic, fantastic mob, brilliant, brilliant organisation. And, uh, you know, being very diligent, mum and dad taught me, you know, how, how you're supposed to act and, 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 and you know, do the right things. And I uh, went into really a, a environment where there was lots of um, drugs, alcohol, homelessness, violence, um, you know, uh, re- really people who are you know, struggling. Um, and I rocked up after I won my uh, position in a suit, you know, because that's what you do to, to and I was young as well. So it was, it was just completely off. It was hilarious. And, and one of the uh, managers there kindly, um, you know, just, just had a nice uh, respectful conversation about maybe I could dress down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and being so diligent, the next day I came uh, uh, in a singlet and uh, <laughs> extreme to the other so embarrassing trying to do it so well and uh he ended up saying well maybe not that uh dressed down and obviously i found i found a middle a middle ground at some point but it was it was so important for me to connect i needed to make sure i didn't stand out and and uh both were saying the wrong you know message i uh, it wasn't obviously um uh, measured at the level and so I can understand you know we might miss it on the attire but maybe we 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 meet it with the way that we um converse with with you know um the consumers or the clients or patients whatever language we we use but even that's important you know because you know even the word patient I like the word client um uh but uh you know the medical model tends to use the word patient uh and and that's that that's okay as well. I mean, it's a, it, it's got its roots and and, and so on. Uh, but I prefer, um, you know, uh, a client. For myself, I like person accessing services. There's, you know, people first language, and um, I guess you know that that accessing services not not the defining. You know, mm. feature of this human mm. being it's a thing I'm doing you know at that time um so that's a little bit wordier but that, that's what I tend to use sometimes I use um in the UK and in New Zealand they use the term service user um so as a shorthand in, in writing nice. I use that term a little bit as well um but yeah I think it's interesting that's a that's a good story um I think that in a way it's sort of it's it's the it's the top layer of, like if you think about this, like you know, it's like an onion. Like even if you got your attire right, ultimately still, 
you're walking into a situation where people are having experiences that are just so foreign, probably, mm. I'm assuming, you know, to you, or at least to us. 100%, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that I really try to help, um, you know, clinicians to understand is that although people who are in distress, you know, having challenges um, of different kinds with adversity look very disorganized and chaotic in our thinking. We do look like that from the outside a lot of the time. There's a level of uh, perception that I experienced, particularly when I was in distress and particularly when I was accessing services. It's almost like an authenticity meter. Like you just, you, there's a part of you, no matter like if you're babbling and whatever is going on, there's a part of you that's really almost at an instinctive level, almost like a primal kind of experience, reaching out to see, is this person being real with me, you know? And I think that's something that um, I think people do re realise that because people will either, doesn't matter what sort of performance someone puts on. For what them, are you looking for? Connection, real connection and lack of judgement. We're, we're looking for the other person to see us as a person. And not as a mess, not as a, not as a, a, a you know, cluster of symptoms, not as a diagnosis. We want them to see that no matter what their behaviours are like in that moment, we want you to look right inside and see that I'm a person just like you. And maybe today I don't look like you, but I, I'm as valuable as you are. I'm as deserving of love and connection as you are. And no matter what's happened to me in my life and no matter what you're on a superficial, you know, societal kind of, um, you know, matrix, no matter what your status might be compared to mine, I want to see that you don't see there's any difference between us, that you see that I am worth every bit as much of, as you are and that you want to know me. You want to see me and get to know me as a, as a person and that the reason that you're here is because you hope that you might be able to walk, walk beside me in my journey, not tell me what to do, not teach me, not, you know, fix me, but walk beside me and help me find the ways that I can fix things for myself. And again, I think that's what lived experience work is. I know from the research, having lived experience workers in a multidisciplinary environment helps other clinicians to really do that stuff and do it well. And I know that because the clinicians have told me that. It's very exciting that having lived experience workers in their environment taught them to have deeper relationship, better rapport, and to really get past some of the barriers that professionalism can create um, to just be with another person. And rather than fixating on an outcome or what it is that they, they feel that their role is supposed to be, to just spend time with another human being and care about that other human being. And then other things just sort of happen naturally as a result of that connection and that caring. Let me throw a little bit of a spanner in the works to try and uh, toss this around a little bit. How about the concept of lived experience of being on this earth for long enough uh, that the potential of if someone has lived for long enough, they must have experienced great, deep loss um, uh, more than likely, you know, confusion in their uh, life trajectory, you know, existential questions, um, um, 
value conflicts, um, you know, great suffering and, and, and pain of loss, you know, often, you know, uh, maybe relationship wise or, you know, the loss of loss of a trajectory of a dream. Um, uh, maybe not necessarily always at the Maslow's lowest sort of hierarchy, you know, where, where, you know, their needs have pretty well always been met, but their emotional needs have been um, missed many a time. Sure. I think most of us who have lived for any length of time uh, maybe, and I'm just tossing this around to see, see where we can go with this. Maybe there's lived experience in, in, in that um, or, or how, how do we, how do we look at defining who, 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 who's able to put their hand up and say, I have lived experience and, and, and where are we kind of going? Oh, really? Not, you're not quite there. How, do, how does that sort of space, um, you know, I'm feel? I'm very glad feel. you asked. Um, I've, I've just spent two whole research projects um, looking yes. into that very issue. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one thing I think that I'd like to say is I've, we validate and I validate everyone has got lived experience we all as you say like if you live to 30 i would uh, i think you'd be hard pressed to find someone past 30 who hasn't suffered deeply in some way or another um and one of the things that one of the things that we we're hoping for lived experience workforce is actually a higher valuing of all types of lived experience and of everyone's lived experience. So I, I always think, I think it's a bit of a sort of like a hangover from the patriarchy that we still elevate formal types of knowledge so much and we don't value that which is learnt emotionally and that which is learnt over the course of life. Um, and I think that's a great shame because I think the lessons that we learn, you know, internally rather than, you know, from theory and textbook are often the deepest and the richest. And particularly when you're talking about person to person connection, they're often the lessons that really allow for those relationships to be, you know, richer and, and, and more rewarding. Um, so one of the goals and, and one of the, the, the realistic outcomes of bringing in lived experience workers is we find that the lived experience of people accessing services is more highly valued. That's, of course, very, very important, because if you come to a service feeling sort of broken and like you're a mess and somebody turns around and says, hey, you know what, maybe you do feel like that, but we also see that you're the expert on your own particular situation and that you will have and do have, you know, ideas and, um, you know, ability to start to shape how things go forward. So rather than feeling helpless, if the people that you go to talk to, the whole service, not just the lived experience workers, but the, the whole of organisation sees that you have a valuable lived experience to bring to your own, you know, recovery, then that, that in itself is transformational. If all of the, you know, people who identify as having a lived experience in human resource roles, in supervisory roles, in clinician, you know, roles, what have you, if their lived experience is valued, then that decreases the stigma immediately. And it makes the people coming to access the service feel better about who they are. And again, it's, it's part of the whole of who they are. But you achieve those goals by having the lived experience worker in place with the ability to specifically focus on shifting that culture, on shifting attitudes, on providing a, 
a uniquely different way of viewing, which you don't get taught in psychology or social work or psychiatry or mental health nursing. It's, it's a process that you almost have to go through individually, almost a, a, like a, a de-brainwashing that you have to go through to, to learn to feel that you have value as a person with a significant lived experience. Um, and I'll go into the, the difference in a moment. Um, you really have to challenge the, the, the thinking that is around us, that kind of taken for granted thinking about people who have adverse experiences. To be helpful to somebody else in their journey, you can't look at yourself in the mirror and think, you're a loser, you know, like you just, you just didn't, you just didn't cope. You, ha you can't think, oh, you're not as strong as other people. You can't think um, you're different than other people in a significant way. You, you need to do the work internally to look yourself in the eye and think, I'm okay. You know, like I have the right to be here. I, I have valid opinions. And that's very much, um, that's a very difficult job to do. But that's very much the work of lived experience because no matter how much sort of, you know, advertising we do around shifting attitudes towards mental health, fundamentally, mental health is still a highly stigmatized experience. And people who have significant mental health experiences and services and what have you do experience a loss of self-esteem, um, typically loss of relationship, often, you know, loss of loss of jobs and even homes, loss of status, all these kinds of things. So that the end result of that marginalization um, whether it's just you in yourself, like self-stigmatizing, or it's other people around you contributing to that, is that you, you're left in a place where you don't feel as good as other people, really, to see his really simple language. And so part of the work of the lived experience worker is to move from that place to a different place where you see yourself in all your glory, your spots, your, you know, your, your good stuff, your strong stuff, your, your areas where you, you struggle, and to be able to learn to accept that um, as, a, as a whole person. And, and in reality, I don't think we're any different than anyone else. Everybody has their, you know, their stronger and their, their less strong areas, but it's just that we've been taught by the beliefs that we hold collectively as a society that there's something wrong with us. And then you have to learn to not believe that anymore. It's really interesting because there's, there's almost like a bit of a conflict in that, in, 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 in uh, talking about lived experience uh, uh, and that if we kind of try and put on a linear, you know, of, of anyone who has hardship, you know, and, and obviously there's greater hardships, there's, there, there, there's lesser hardships. And part of the, the, the challenge we have is if we describe it, it's very easy for everyone to understand and appreciate what someone's going through. But if we give it a, a name, a disorder, or even call it like mental health problems, then it becomes a thing. Yes. Uh, it's a problem uh, to do and, that, to label. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and there's, there's almost like a, a challenge in, in even by, by in some sense, and I don't know if, if, if I've thought this through enough, but uh, by saying lived experience almost says that there's a category there, um, uh, you know, and, and we kind of need to hear from this category and it's almost like, well, this is the category of the unwell versus this is a position of understanding all. Because um, in so many ways, what you're describing, I feel, 
is very much what psychology is always trying to, at least, you know, the way that we, we, we do it here, is always trying to, to sit, you know, in, in that spot of everyone. I mean, we call often in our, in, in our sessions that you know, our clients are our, are our family members. We want to do everything in the same way that we would for our family members. There's no differences there that, that you know, we're all um, just human beings, you know, the, the language of being a human being rather than you know, anything else. But uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's hard to grapple this because we're, we're trying to remove stigma, but we still need to hear a particular voice to have this conversation. So it's, you know, informed by a better understanding of what hardship can look like and, and who, who, yeah. can, who can be a good voice for that. I hear what you're saying. I think um, I'm glad that we have a long conversation because um, <laughs> we, we have thought about this. Um, so I think one of the things is I don't see lived experience as being defined by hardship or adversity. I see lived experience workers as survivors. They're people who have who have trans, you know, transformed their mm -hmm. experience into something else, which is not to say that we don't still have, you know, periods of, you know, distress and difficulty, but we've been sure. through it once and we, you know, we, we know that we're likely to get through it again. We have skills. I don't see it as a lived experience of um, like suffering and, and distress. I see it as a lived experience of moving through those experiences of claiming another type of identity, which is not dictated by social ideas, but actually, you know, is something that I have built for myself and that others have, you know, we have built for ourselves, which is about, you know, valuing ourselves as we are with all of those experiences and defying that idea of stigma, really, which is not to say, again, that I don't still face moments where I self-stigmatize, I do, but primarily I have the tools and I have the messages now embedded to push back against that and importantly i recognize that i believe that those messages are wrong i don't fundamentally agree with them i therefore do not just roll over and sort of go like oh yeah okay, i'm less than i just say all right well yeah i hear what you're saying louise but um i don't agree and this is why <laughs> you know so i guess the other thing just going back to your earlier point is that what we're defining as the expertise um, needed for lived experience work um, was talking about having lived experience which is significant enough that it's changed your life as you knew it, that it's just stopped you in your tracks. And instead of going down path A, where you thought you were headed, you've had to totally reevaluate everything you thought you knew about yourself, about your life, about your future, about you know your worldview. And you've had to forge like step by step by step a very different path than what you were intending um, and it's that significant life-changing experience that allows you to really sit with other people who are having experiences that are so significant that their lives are changing and how do you feel about even the term like mental health because that mm -hmm kind Look, of uh, does put almost like a partition between, you know, uh, those that are mentally well and those that aren't mentally well. You know, even these – I like linguistics. I, I come from, a, um, uh, I suppose, a mind frame that 
describing is so much more valuable and helpful and useful and hence why I like to do this long form conversations rather than you know categorizing but our language is just built I mean relational frame theory is all about how we um, uh, what 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 uh, particular language represents you know one word can mean a infinite they have can have an infinite number of connections with other things and therefore can represent many things and we definitely know that mental health represents stigma you know there's something wrong about uh if if you feel anything these days yeah like they, we just use the word depression anxiety just flippantly these days it, it, it it's so constant and regular it's it's in every household every day almost it's it's fascinating how we do this so how do you feel about you know mental health how do we un, un, untangle this stuff well I actually actually leads me to another topic which i think is really important particularly in relation to lived experience I am not a fan of labelling. Um, I was diagnosed with a pretty stigmatised um, diagnosis at 14. I had a Catholic school in a you know rural town, and um, you know the way that people reacted to that in the 1990s. Yeah, that's it. You're done. Uh, it was Finished. not helpful, <laughs> and it wasn't helpful for me because I like that was later rescinded anyway by some other expert. But in the meantime, from fourteen, I was like, "Is that is that who I am?" You know, and it and I adopted these characteristics and these behaviours because somebody very important and much more knowledgeable than me was telling me that's who I was. You know, mm. so I'm like really not a fan of diagnosis. Plus, when you were saying you know depression before, I think it's so interesting because. I say I feel depressed. My neighbor says I feel depressed. The guy down the road says I feel depressed. We all mean different things. You know, what do you feel? I feel down. I feel sluggish. I can't get up. I can't do, you know, like tell me about your actual experience for a start. But then the labeling. This is an interesting one. One, I'd just like to say that I think that one of the really big things that we absolutely have to focus in the lived experience space and the mental health space more broadly is a, a proactive, really um, comprehensive attention to how we ensure that diversity and inclusion is meaningfully realized in our workforce. Because we have people from all different experiences, identifications and cultures accessing services who do not see themselves in the faces and the life experiences of the people that they are, they are talking to. Um, there's still the way that in order for support systems and services to be useful, they need to understand the people who are coming to talk to them. And mental health or suicide or drug and alcohol or homelessness, that's one experience. But if you come from a non-English speaking background or you come from identifying you know, as um, non-binary um, or whatever it is that your, your experience is, if you can't find anybody to speak to who has even a passing understanding of where it is that you come from, then that ability to connect and really walk 
together is, is limited, which is not to say that people with different um, experiences can't come together and different cultures can't come together and assist each other. Of course, they can. But we do need to really focus on making sure that there is a better representation of people of colour in our workforce, that there are better representation of people with um, a whole range of adverse experiences and a whole range of identifications. Because again, just having people who represent diverse you know, experiences tells people accessing services that this is a place that they're welcome. This is a place that they're understood and where their story is going to be meaningfully kind of heard. Um, and that is my way to introduce the fact that the term that I like and I favour um, is one that's been really um, championed by First Nations people in Australia, and that's emotional and social well-being. Um, so I think that mental health obviously has so many difficulties and I would just like to say that I don't think that the mainstream services should just grab that term, you know, social and emotional well-being and take it because that that is what you know often tends to happen, particularly um, with First Nations initiatives. But I think paying due respect to the fact that this, this concept has been really um, mapped out specific to First Nations communities that I think probably the most useful way for us to start looking at mental health going forward and talking about mental health going forward would be to take guidance from First Nations people and communities and the way that they have looked at these issues um, and the language that they're using without stealing it and without, um, you know, without missing some of the key points because there's stuff around social emotional well-being which is specific to Aboriginal um, life and Aboriginal communities. But I do think it's probably the only term that I think really gives like gives a sense of you know without without creating them that them us kind of barrier it, it almost requires that we keep changing the language because once once we once we acclimatize to lived experience workers or emotional and social well-being it's very easy for our head to just categorize that again and just go i know what that means yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're so right. right. You know, the, Language they're, needs to they're, be alive. They're the crazies, yeah. right? They're the people, or whatever you know, um, nonsense that that the mind goes out and does, you know. Yep. Versus a culture that, you know, someone who doesn't see it that way, they don't care if it's this term or that term or that term. They don't go out and go, they're different to me. They're less than me. I'm superior. They're inferior. It doesn't do that. It just says, I don't care for the term. They're a human being. You we'll know, just keep talking. And I think that's what you were saying before is describe mm, it. Don't mm, use a term, mm. just describe what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So may, maybe in that, that, that it doesn't have a term. It's, it, it, it's, it's just about how we discuss this because a term will ultimately, uh, if it's re repeated, it begins to represent something. Yeah. Um, and, and it picks and, up, as you say, attitudes. Yes, yes, yes. You know, they're, they're, they're like a culture just builds around that term that is adopted by, you know, um, uh, a larger proportion, then we just kind of get what that is. Yep, yep. Yeah. I think that we see that, um, particularly with, um, you know, 
left-wing movements, we see language shifting and changing all the time. And um, sometimes people talk about that like it's a problem. And I think, well, why is that a problem? Isn't it good to be evolving, always evolving? Like, what? okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? How can we do this in more meaningful ways? Um, you know, how can we consult or, you know, engage with a wider group of people to see how they want to talk about things? One of the things I've always said is, like, you might have like a, a default term that you use, but whoever, like whatever community you're going into or whatever individual you're yarning with, ask them, well, how do you want, how do you like to be, you know, how do you like to describe this experience that we're meeting to chat about? Or, you know, how do you like, what's the sort of term, term that feels comfortable for you? And then negotiate that. And then it becomes a strength rather than a potential barrier. If you open it up and say, I want to know what this means to you, and I want to talk about this in a way that's meaningful to you, then you've actually, you know, created an opportunity to connect. Um, so I actually think... Mm. Um, fluidity, you know, with language and, and evolving language is actually exciting. Um, I know the problem always is once you've got a big system, you've got a big organisation or whatever, and you're trying to do things on a statewide and, you know, a national level or even, you know, a large regional um, service, you there are, there are times when you need something on a piece of paper that symbolizes the same thing to everyone so that you, because you don't have the time to explain of it course, over and over again. Of course. So it's that tension between um, efficiency with a large sort of working model and an individual human being and their real world experience. So I think one of the things that happens that I anecdotally that I see happening, particularly in, let's say in um, university systems, we hear the same things over and over and over again. And we start to think that that's like a real thing. Like we, we buy into it. Sure, um, sure. And I think that reminding people to have a certain level of cynicism about, it's almost like they, they are just symbols, you know, like the words that we use, the label, it's just a symbol that helps us all have some shorthand idea of what the other person's talking about. But ultimately, we don't really know. So if you're not sure, ask, but also just remember that it's just shorthand. It's not a real thing. Like, don't invest in the idea of mental health or, you know, um, depression even or any of those things. Just, that's just a word that we use that, you know, we've got some basic common sense of, like, what, what, what we collectively believe that means. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts of it, we need to have a proper conversation about what that means to you and what that means to me. Because mm. it almost feels like once we categorize, which as you mentioned, kind of has to happen because how else do you go out and, and communicate to the masses? But once we grab those, we, we start uh, placing meaning and representation around what those things are. And then we start feeling insulted and people yeah. start saying, I don't feel safe in this area, you know, yeah. and these are the things that I need to be, to, to, to feel safe, but they're not an individual conversation. Uh, they're, they're, it's, it, it's a, it's a mass communication yeah. and vice versa. You know, I mean, not every session that I've ever, ever, ever started, um, you know, in, in therapy is, you know, we go through confidentiality and all that sort of stuff. And then I just say, uh, so what brings you here? And unfortunately, so much of the time, what I hear is, well, I've got, which is the identification uh -huh. You know, they don't say I've got the flu, but they will say I've got depression or I've got, you know, anxiety. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, 
something interesting and you know obviously my job is to say you know can you tell me a little bit more about that describe what that means to you what that you know is like for you what's it like to be in your skin etc etc um uh you know i'm trying to unpack it and understand it which is probably where clients go i think i'm being heard and understood but i will generally still try to communicate that with others in a shorthand because i don't have an hour and a half to write a letter to someone else about this so it's 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 complex it, it, it's a real um I, I think you use a nice word like this tension this tension between trying to yep. achieve both functional um and and and, and merit-based outcomes yeah absolutely i think the other thing that you remind me is of is which which i still hear a lot is people saying oh so and so is bipolar or i am you know what whatever <laughs> I, I am and you're just like, wow, you know, they, but that that's, you know, sort of, I guess what I was talking about before with that lived experience role of moving through layers of nonsense that we've constructed around these kinds of experiences. That's one of the layers of nonsense that we have to move through, you know, is that idea that you are defined by kind of these experiences. And I, and absolutely, I know that a lot of um, the clinical workforce is also sort of trying to achieve the same thing. And I think it's, I guess, going back to your earlier question, it's about how you do that. So mm. a lived experience worker can say, hey, you know what? I know what it feels like to get a diagnosis. I know what it feels like when people see me as if that's who I am. And I'll tell you what, that's not who I am. Yes. And I also know how to let that go and move into a place where I recognize and other people increasingly recognize that that's not who I am. So I guess it's that it's always with the lived experience worker it's always shades of difference. Um, and, and anyone who's coming from a recovery informed perspective and anybody who's coming from a person, you know, um, person to person perspective, we're all trying to achieve the same things in our various roles, but it's the tools that we have to do that. Um, and it's the how do we do that? So um, all of the different disciplines have different, um, you know, sort of underpinning um, theories or uh, practices, which are common. And the lived experience stuff, which is so unique, is that ability to say, yeah, me too. I've been there. And, um, and then sometimes you want to share excerpts from your personal story. Sometimes it's not even needed or useful, but it's that establishing that you too know what something like you know, not the exact same, nobody's having the exact same experience, but you, you've had an experience which is comparable in some ways, and you can relate to it, and you can empathize, and you together can think about what from a practical, common sense, lived perspective, we can do together and you know I can do myself as the person accessing services to make changes that are meaningful to me. I'm sure this is going to generate a lot of people who are going to want to know more about this and, and, and look at the research to find out how, how lived experience unfolds and, and, and its contributions and value to society, how, how we, we structure it, how we're informed by it. Where can people go to find out more about this? I know you've done some, some well, we've done lots of research in, in, in this. Can you talk about um, uh, where we could go to follow up on, on this and continue to have that conversation? 
Absolutely. So there's um, a range of places, like if you're um, somehow connected with academia, like most um, researchers, I've got a ResearchGate profile. So all of my you know, work is up there. Um, I recently, with my team, led the, um, the writing of the National Lived Experience Workforce Development Guidelines, and they will be released sometime this year. So that's probably more for organisations who want a blueprint. And I mean, man, this is exhaustive. We exhausted ourselves creating this document. <laughs> um, but it really is, it's really the A to Z of what you need to do, you know, to create a good lived experience workforce. But um, the other place that I'm really excited about sharing um, today is um, one of my frustrations working in research is that it's not as freely available as it should be. Um, I think it, I, I think all research should be free and that everyone should be able to access it. But even if it is, a lot of the writing is so dense and incomprehensible that even if you've got really high, um, you know, standards of literacy, it's still difficult and or boring. I'll tell you what, I am not a big fan of academic writing myself. Um, so some colleagues that I work with frequently and myself um, have taken all of the key pieces of work that, um, that, that I and we have done on lived experience workforce. And um, we've created a, a website called livedexperienceleadership.com.au, livedexperienceleadership.com.au. And um, it's, we've got uh, range of just like handy like snapshot definitions so that stuff I was talking about before what is the lived experience required um, what is lived experience workforce um, what are the skills set you know of a lived experience worker that kind of thing um, and we've just we've kept it all really snappy and then there's downloadable pdfs you know if you want to take it and show somebody else um, we've also got really plain language summaries of the articles they're not all up there it's sort of this is a soft launch um, it's a, a work in progress but there's um, a number of articles already up there and so there's a link to the full article for those who really want to get into that side of things but there's also a one to two pager which just gives you the guts of it. What are the main findings? And if I wanted to think about, or I've got lived experience people working in my organization and I need to know a little bit more about X, here are the main things that the research has found. So you don't have to, you can spend five minutes instead of, you know, two hours reading an article. And um, is this just the research that you guys have put out or is this more of a, a collection? Because obviously some of the issues that I have with, with, with finding research is I can go through and, you know, uh, read, read research. I've, I'm fairly, you know, literate in, the, in that sense. Having said that, the minute I get to any of the statistical analyses, I don't know if they've been peer reviewed, um, whether, whether they actually stand up in, in, in court, so to speak. Um, yeah. Because as we know, you know, not, not all research is, is good research. Who, who's, who's vetting that and putting, putting them up? Is it just your group or is it a wider sort of um, global collection? It's peer-reviewed work, so um, so 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 it's articles that um, there's a couple of pieces. So we did the Queensland Lived Experience Workforce Framework a couple of years ago, um, and the national guidelines. We've got summaries, or we will have summaries of those up once the national guidelines is available. But um, they're not peer-reviewed, but they're evidence-informed. So we used all our peer-reviewed work to write those documents. Sure. Everything else up there absolutely is published peer-reviewed work, um, incredible, you know, journals. And then what we do is we take that and we turn it into one to two page summary so that people can just have that nice little. Um, yeah, brilliant. You know, yeah. The other thing we've got, um, so 
my work and and this 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 piece of work is the most um, substantial, I guess. Um, research program into lived experience workforce in this country, definitely. Um, so we sort of felt justified in, you know, like that's that's our emphasis because there's quite a lot of work. I've been um, pretty much exclusively focusing on lived experience workforce development for 12 years. Um, and I've I had a full bride and I went to the US and you know worked over there and done studies internationally and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's a pretty meaty um, set of findings um, together. But um, we also have got a like some featured work, some Australia, some uh, some work by other Australian lived experience researchers. Just not, it's not exhaustive, but um, just some really um, key pieces, really seminal pieces. And similarly, um, internationally, we've just got a small range. What we're aiming to do more and more is also have links to repositories, um, so spaces where people can go. And one of the things that's really difficult when you're talking about credibility. I think about credibility, there's two things I want from credibility. I want the work to be credible from a research perspective, so peer-reviewed in something, you know, credible journal and all the rest of it, but I also want it to be credible from a lived experience perspective, because as this workforce is gaining popularity, what we're finding is that there are people popping up all over the place with an interest in it, but not necessarily a deep knowledge of it. So there's more and more work going into other people studying the lived experience workforce that's not necessarily lived experience informed or led, and that's problematic. So one of the things that this um, website does is focuses on lived experience led work and these are credible concepts so the work that you know that I've done and that, that my team has done within Queensland and nationally literally more than a thousand people gave us feedback on, on the, the, the documents that we put put out across the, the nation, across the sector, across role types. So first of all we've done the, the research, we'd had that published. Then we put, we sort of collated it all together into these pieces of work. And then we had um, engagement after engagement after engagement to ensure that it hit the mark with, with the industry. So I, it's been really thoroughly vetted. Um, and of course, it all comes from a lived experience led perspective, which I think is really important increasingly going forward, because we're actually seeing more and more people sort of popping up and um, claiming to lead lived experience kind of spaces who often have no experience. They don't themselves have a lived experience. They're not connected to the movement and they don't understand the underpinning. So we definitely need spaces where people can trust that what is being put up is representative of this, you know, this collective thinking and this movement. The other thing I would say is we've also got um, some stuff. So I did a TEDx a few years ago, which is like 20 minutes in which I talk about lived experience work, um, like sort of from a personal and professional point of view. Um, and people can have a look at that. And there's a few other video and audio resources. So we sort of try to make it. Um, is that all in the same space. place? Is it's that all in the same place? What, what, yeah, what's yeah. The, what's the, because um, what, what, what an incredible and, and free resource. What is the website or how, how do you go? How, how do you find all, all of that material? If you go to, if you type in livedexperienceleadership.com.au, then oh, you'll that find one. us. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. So Brilliant. All, all of that. So yeah, so effectively, we try, we tried to make it a place where anyone who's interested in learning about lived experience work, whether you're an individual accessing services, or you're, a, you know, a 
an executive director, um, if you're a researcher, it doesn't matter. There's stuff there for you. So you can you can access the full peer-reviewed articles. You can just download the one to two page summary of the research. You can get the plain language summaries of the definitions of the work. You can watch a video. You can listen to a radio. We'll put your podcast up there at some point. So, you know, there's all these different ways to, um, to engage with it and find out more. No, fantastic. Look, I'll, I'll have to uh, pass on those details. We we, we have a, an organisation here in the ACT called uh, ACT Mental Health Consumer Network, and they do exactly that in terms of try and be a voice for what, what you know, they use the word consumer um, for, for uh, service consumers, mental health service uh, consumers around Canberra to whether it's the hospitals, whether it's, you know, uh, mental health ACT, you know, the, the various sort of, sort of places and they've got advocates that go out and, and sit in meetings and the like. So a fantastic group uh, and, 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 you know, they, they really do inform, uh, you know, lots of things, you know, including really important policy decisions about, you know, how people are, are cared for. You know, I, I know personally, um, you know, they, 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 they've specifically, um, put a lot of work into um, what's it called when, when, when your rights are taken away from you um, and, and, and professionals decide for you as to what treatment you're going to get. Um, Involuntary treatment. Yeah, there, there's a particular term, but yeah, in, in terms of how, how to try and, and uh, uh, not only have policy, but also to teach uh, people on the ground about that as well. Cause it's one thing to have policy. It's another thing as well to, yeah. to then have, you know, implementation of of, of of that policy so there's many many, many i think it's called a health directive i think or mental health directive or something maybe oh, here in the act an advanced directive like when, no, you, that, when that's probably yeah yeah that's probably yeah, yeah. it um, yeah. Yeah. i don't know i i uh there's too many terms but but, but these terms should be well known and, and and spoken about so they do represent something extremely important and and, and you know you know, here I am just, you know, forgetting those as well. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be passing on those details to, to the network because, um, you know, that, that's the sort of stuff that they can potentially just pick up off the shelf and, and, and use themselves um, to, to, to the, distribute because you guys have done all the work. So um, yep. it's amazing. All of, all of the research that I've done has been very much about creating advocacy tools for our workforce. Um, so that that's exactly the intention is that people can pick something up and instead of having to troll through, you know, all sorts of things, they can put it on their manager's desk or they can take it and say, look, evidence shows us this. And it's, it's, it strengthens, like, it's great to have people in. And I have heard of um, the ACT Consumer Network, and there's many um, organisations like that across Australia, peak bodies representing consumers and carers, um, and they do fantastic work. And there are skilled people um, making arguments and advocating for people accessing services all over the place. And what this work does is adds another... Um, another layer to that argument so that like I can say this is what we've seen you know anecdotally and then I, you, they can point to the research and the research says yes we're right you know so it's just um, we work in an evidence-based system and so really this work just allows people to add credibility to what what it is that they're trying to do in the lived experience space. Fantastic fantastic what's next for you? Oh, what um, research are you doing at the moment? 
I actually don't know. Like I'm, I'm for the first time I'm in between projects right now for the first time in like seven years, I've had overlapping. We just finished the national guidelines. Um, well, not just finished, but um, yeah, I actually don't know. I'm very excited um, as a result of the Royal Commission into Mental Health Services in Victoria. There are some incredible opportunities coming up for the lived experience movement. Um, they've really committed funds and proper positions. And I think that there's opportunity to see lived experience um, much more meaningfully rolled out than it ever has been before. So um, mostly I'm writing papers at the moment um, because I've been doing so many, um, you know, projects, research projects. Um, there's a lot of data sitting there that needs to be written up um, and kind of waiting a little bit to see. I want, I'm always looking for what is, what do I think will be the, the next most impactful thing mm. that, that I can do to contribute. Um, so yeah, I'm just sort of kind of work work out what that is yeah you got to wait and let that germinate and, and and find the opportunity rather than whatever's just sitting there you got to be selective yeah louise like i i, I could talk to you for uh, another another hour and a, a quarter an hour and a half quite easily thank you very much for your time i know that you're busy and, and you've taken time out of your schedule to to talk to us and and give us your incredible insights uh, you know, thanks for the awesome work that you're doing and I'll, I'll be sure to pass on those those uh, details. And look, we'll put a link as well, you know, on, on our website. Um, anything else that you want to add, please, please let us know. We'll, we'll um, you know, connect it from from our uh, uh, website to wherever you want to send us and, and we'll go from there. So thanks very much, Louise. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I had a ball. It was um, It was a great treat for me to be able to talk so much about these things that I care about so much. And it was lovely speaking with you. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.